I'm Ishika and I'm Akshay. The thing about wildlife is anyone can fall in love with it through science, photography, literature or innocent observation. Sharing their love today is Tarun Nair, a wildlife conservationist and herpetologist who studies rivers and riverine reptiles. He works for the Ashoka Trust for Ecology and the Environment in Bangalore, but the views he expresses today are personal. So hey everyone, welcome back to the thing about wildlife and today we're super excited to have with us Tarun Nair. He is an ecologist, hydrologist, conservationist and his work has been committed to the central Indian landscape for a long time now. He was also the assistant curator of the last in back in 2013 and he was involved in creating a constellation. As executive officer of the Gharial Conservation Trust, he is involved in research, management, public and policy. He has undertaken a survey on human crocodile conflict in India and his MSc was on population estimation and habitat He currently associated with ATRI, which is the Ashoka Trust for Ecology and Environment. And so we are super super excited and we're really looking forward to this conversation. So welcome Tarun. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so Tarun, I think we, we can start from the beginning, right at the beginning uh, of your journey, which is uh, probably in your school days. Uh, you went to Valley School in Bangalore. Uh, for our listeners, this is a sprawling school campus surrounded by a scrubby forest. And it's one of uh, Jindu Krishnamurti's schools, which has a very inclusive philosophy towards education. And it's no surprise that many people, a disproportionate number of people coming from these sorts of schools uh, are in our field. And uh, so did, did this early training influence your internal compass and your personal philosophies? And uh, tell us more about growing up in this place. Uh, is this where your love for nature and reptiles in particular first began? Uh, not really. So Valley School happened uh, quite late. Uh, in my life. It was only in class 11 and 12 that I spent studying there. Um, so, yeah, um, growing up, I never enjoyed schooling as such. And uh, after class 10, I gave up on formal education, although I was admitted to a college. And that's when I first got the chance to volunteer with a bunch of uh, um, wildlife organizations. And uh, since I got fully involved in that, uh, I missed out on exams and all of that and that went on for the next three years so yeah so it was i'd uh, in a sense given up on education after class 10 and uh, most of the work we were involved in uh, revolved around uh, the rescue and rehabilitation of wildlife mostly urban wildlife in and around bangalore and that was also the time i got involved in uh, monitoring illegal wildlife trade especially of uh, um, smaller sized wildlife like uh, tortoises and turtles, birds, uh, small mammals and so on. And uh, it was uh, towards the end of three years that I uh, had a little accident. I got bitten by a snake and then I was put into hospital and then my parents said go back to school, <laughs> like nothing, uh, uh, nothing else. And um, and I'd heard about the Wadi school from a bunch of people before that. And so my condition was if I'm going back to school, it has to be the Wadi school because uh, I heard that there were leopards and elephants visiting the campus. And uh, that was really my only motivation to go to Wadi school. I knew nothing about Jiddu Krishnamurti or his philosophy. And so all of that happened much later. 
and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful to uh, Valley School for having taken me in because I was already 19 and no other institute would have admitted me into their program. So yeah, so I was 19 when I started class 11 and yeah, things went on from there. <laughs> Wow, that's an interesting uh, story. So, uh, can we ask what uh, happened with the snake bite? What snake was it, and how did it happen? So, yeah. So this was. Uh, so we used to get uh, plenty of uh, calls from either residents or yeah people in the city. And it was usually a case of a snake in somebody's house or in the kitchen or bathroom or so on. But uh, this this particular call came from Tannery Road and uh, from a temple nearby, and. Uh, so I hadn't known the background uh, till much later. So somebody had, uh, somebody saw the snake and beat it up and somebody else from the temple called us. So by the time I got there, there was a large crowd around the snake. And as was our practice, I went in, uh, picked up the snake and I was trying to bag it. So we used to carry these pillow covers to uh, keep snakes in and transport them around. Uh, and so while I was trying to bag the snake, uh, somebody had all who wanted the snake killed tried to grab it from my hand and in the process i got bitten and uh, yeah so then i was rushed to a hospital and um, a well-meaning nurse uh, poured some water into my mouth uh, to quench my thirst but uh, uh, i had a severe case of envenomation and uh, i'd lost all muscular control so i couldn't swallow that water and I started choking on it. And because I was choking, I also started throwing up. And because I couldn't throw up completely, I started choking on my vomit. And I passed out for, I think, about 48 hours or so. And as soon as I woke up, uh, they said that I have to, uh, they have to amputate my ring finger on my left hand. And so all of that happened. And I was still in a daze, and I didn't know what happened. Uh, over the past like three four days yeah so that went on and i thought oh this this is lousy luck but then people are like no the initial plan was to get uh to move your hand from elbow downwards because of how bad the bite was but uh because of my general condition and i was not in a state uh, for general anesthesia they said let's just remove the finger and wait till he gets better before we <laughs> uh have another major operation but luckily the uh they decided that they can just manage the rest of the injury with this uh finger being amputated and that they didn't have to <laughs> take off the rest of my um yeah so that's about it but yeah overall it uh changed my <laughs> life's trajectory because i got back into schooling because of that incident Wow, that's crazy, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not uh, an experience that many people <laughs> would have had or even like to have. But I think uh, this is a common thread, right? When such events happen in your life, like you said, your trajectory changes, and especially with wildlife and nature, having these encounters with the natural world, where uh, for no fault of the snake, of course, and you know <laughs> that, and the snake knows that. Yes. Uh, but yeah. I think that's uh, definitely quite a life-changing sort of a, uh, experience to go through. And it sounds like it can be quite grueling at that young age as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's also perhaps the most uh, dynamic start we've had to any of our episodes so far. Uh, 
part uh, in terms of uh, an anecdote. But I guess that's also what's interesting about working with reptiles, right? I mean, they are a species that's uh, there isn't there a group of species that's so far removed from what we know as mammals, but yet so many people interact with them that closely. Yeah, so in some sense, it's uh, a lot of people who work with snakes accept that you're going to get bitten at some point of time. And I've most of my colleagues were bitten, so I've seen them go through it and all of that. But yeah, but when it happens to you, it certainly <laughs> it, uh, you start thinking differently about a lot of things. But uh, it didn't dissuade me from continuing what I was already doing. And uh, yeah, and thanks to uh, I think a lot of uh, friends who supported me through that period. And, yeah, and even Valley School was like extremely encouraging of what I was doing. And yeah, so yeah, I'm still like utterly grateful for having gone through that experience. The Valley School experience, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's so great. And I think also like what Akshay was saying, that since you very clearly knew that it wasn't the snake's fault, I guess it didn't uh, affect your love for them or reptiles in general. Um, but also, you know, it, it brings us to, you know, there are, of course, so many herpers, you know, who work with snakes uh, and they're, you know, very clearly snake enthusiasts who want uh, to keep doing that all their lives. But you somehow ended up finding yourself amidst these big dinosaur-esque crocodilians of India. And uh, I mean, how did how did that happen? How did you find yourself going from rescuing snakes to working with crocodiles and areas? Mm, yeah, see, although it was uh, a lot of work revolved around snakes, uh, because we were also part of a, a wildlife rehabilitation center, we were dealing with all kinds of creatures, uh, all kinds of birds, uh, tortoises, turtles, civets, jackals, sloth bears and things. So, like, I had, I had this opportunity to work with all kinds of creatures back then. And uh, crocodiles happened... Uh, because uh, there was this opportunity, there was a chance to uh, go survey sites uh, where there were reports of human crocodile conflict, and I signed up for that. And uh, that took me to like different parts of India, which I would never have visited otherwise. So I, that was my first visit to uh, parts of Gujarat. That was also my first uh, visit to the Chambal, which is where I fell in love with the place. And uh, uh, to the Andaman Islands. And uh, it was that exposure in a sense that uh, you go to see these larger landscapes and uh, be introduced to some of the conservation challenges for species across these, across their ranges. And then I uh, uh, came to the realization that if I wanted to be effective in conserving a species or habitat, uh, I might have ha might have a better chance working with a species that is uh, that can be considered a flagship, and yeah, that's when I started warming up to the idea of maybe uh, working with crocodiles and treating them as flagships will help many more creatures that share those spaces and habitats with them. I see. Okay. Yeah. That. I mean, that also is. Uh like you said the landscape itself is a much more umbrella approach to the entire thing and i think that's also uh, pretty cool 
in terms of so so for you what came first you know was it was it the the for the landscape and the riverine systems or was it the like you said the flagship species and the crocodiles uh, themselves um no so even before this particular experience uh because see uh, so by the time i'd uh, gotten into the valley school i'd already spent about 6 7 years not 6 7 years maybe but for the five years working with wildlife and uh so that's around the time when i was introduced to uh, or i read about restoration ecology that must have been some magazine because we didn't have any internet then so i must have seen an article and it was also friends that i worked with and my colleagues here uh we would talk about uh, restoring landscapes and not specifically in the language that we know of it today but uh, it was most mostly with the hope of seeing some of the places that we would visit we would go to places around bangalore and see changes that were happening around them because that was also um, uh, the time that the it boom uh, took off here and so a lot of places that we visited in places that where we would go back to release uh, rehabilitated animals we saw these landscapes changing and we would wonder about oh what like how best could we conserve them and uh, can some of these degraded landscapes uh, be restored and all of that and uh, and also um, after class 12 in valley school uh, I'd fallen in love with the love, the campus itself because it's a wooded campus surrounded by reserve forests, and uh, I had to plan to stay back on campus. And I um, asked if I could stay back and uh, take care of the property. Um, so they agreed, and uh, so yeah, so that allowed me to go around and uh, look at. Uh, um, of forestation activities and uh taking care of weeds and keeping cattle out and we also had a lake in school and we'd had a drought of for i think a couple of years and the lake dried out and so me and uh, my best friend back then uh, we decided yeah now is the chance to do something for this lake so that if there's uh, a good rain in the next year or so then we can like uh make this place uh, more habitable for uh, turtles because we we plan to release a lot of our rehabilitated turtles there so we got together um cleaning up the place because it was overrun by weeds we cleared up some of the catchment that was uh, and some of the, i think some check dams that were blocking the entry of water to that place got rid of a lot of plastic and all of that and luckily a few months later the lake filled up and uh but uh, very day i went to see the lake my friend got there before me and he went in for a swim and drowned unfortunately oh man okay yeah so uh, sorry i mean it is what happened but wow so was he also at valley school with you and was he interested in Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a junior in school. Wow, that's a lot of uh, a lot of very <laughs> emotionally charged experiences to have had really early on. So after this incident, did did it did it uh, 
change your interaction with the very school and 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 that landscape was that something that was a motivation for you to move out then say uh, because you were the assistant curator at the madras crocodile bank for a while uh, was that so oh, yeah but uh, i think that happened much later because uh, we were still operating a couple of wildlife shelters uh, and so i still continued uh, being involved with that and uh, and i was also part of something called the post school program at the wadi school itself um and that's when i was uh, more introduced to krishnamurthy's philosophy and started reading up in all of that and uh, because i was still in school uh, or living on campus uh, i they allowed me to have my own room and i was operating a little rehabilitation center there so, so i had a bunch of birds as uh, bringing up a civet and so on a loris and all kinds of other creatures so that went on for a couple of years and it was around then that i and again i wasn't keen to uh, go or uh, join a regular college so um, i uh, i I joined the life sciences program at the uh, Indira Gandhi National Open University, which is a correspondence course. So that allowed me to stay involved with uh, what I was already doing, and uh, continue this uh, degree program, which I was doing only because of pressure from home. Um, uh, but yeah, but luckily I could uh, continue doing all these other projects, and that's when this chance to work on the human crocodile conflict uh, project came about. and yeah so those were some of the early influences and uh, uh it was after that that then i then worked on another project that the uh, crop bank was involved in uh, which is the king cobra telemetry project in agumbi and then somebody told me about and i'd only heard of the wildlife institute until then and uh, so that was at the back of my mind that yeah maybe this is an option uh if i managed to finish my <laughs> bachelor's and uh, then somebody i think told me about the masters program in bangalore in ncbs and i just uh, applied and yeah I, i was surprised that i got in at all <laughs> <laughs> actually i mean considering what you've told us already in terms of how involved you've been with every aspect of wildlife that you could associate with from a young age it doesn't surprise me at all that you would uh pick to be part of that program i think <laughs> but I, i don't think i had the academic qualifications to <laughs> get in in that case i think you know i mean you're such a great example in terms of just how much uh you can learn from being in field and doing things actively i think that's uh i mean bookish knowledge is one thing but uh, of course you learn so much more in field and i guess that's something one should give a lot more value to as well um yeah so i mean also building upon what you were saying about your work at mcbt you know you seem to have done a lot of work uh in urban areas in semi urban areas you work in the field you've done rehabilitation work and of course mcbt also does uh, work with a lot of captive individuals uh, so what is what was that difference like how different was it to experience uh, you know working with animals in captivity versus out there uh, in their natural habitats mm. 
Yeah, well, uh, joined the Croc Bank mainly because uh, they had this uh, Garyal project uh, that was uh, based out of Croc Bank. So I primarily joined the Garyal project after the master's program. And because I had worked with animals in the past, they asked like uh, if you'd be interested in uh, uh, helping with curatorial tasks since you're already uh, going to be here. And I was like, sure, because uh, I've always enjoyed working hands-on with animals. And I thought this would be a good chance to get back to doing that. But unfortunately, um, it wasn't a particularly great experience of uh, the curatorial work because uh, and I think that would have been the case for anyone who's worked with wildlife before, uh, especially someone who was involved with rescue and rehabilitation. And uh, it was quite disappointing seeing the condition of conditions of the animals uh, housed at the crop bank. And uh, so, but I stuck on with the thinking that maybe can uh, uh, contribute positively to that and try and effect some change, but uh, I don't think any of that materialized and it became in increasingly frustrating to try and make any changes because, you know, because you must remember it's an old institution and they have their ways of doing things and they've been doing this for, uh, for longer than I've been alive and I don't think they would take very kindly to change uh, from somebody uh, who's an upstart in, the, in that uh, setting. So yeah, I didn't think that went very far and uh, eventually I uh, gave up on that and just concentrated on the Garyal project. And also because I was traveling a lot, I wasn't spending much time at the crop bank itself. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tarun. That's uh, very, <laughs> uh, it's great that you're being so honest and yeah, and real about these things, and and I guess that's a theme that our <laughs> listeners will will will, okay. will realize. But see, I, I, your podcast shouldn't get into trouble. So if you want to, if you don't want to refer to the Croc Bank as the Croc Bank, you can just call it a Tamil Nadu-based reptile zoo or something. People will know what we're talking about. Uh, no, I think I think uh, we will we'll chat about that, and but I don't okay. think uh, we we want our podcast to be that. Way. But yeah, fine. Uh, <laughs> So soon after your work at uh, the Crocodile, uh, Crocodile Bank in Chennai, you moved to you started. You said you started focusing on your work in the Chambal. The Chambal. Is... No, actually, that was uh, that was all happening in battle. So I see. The, yeah. So after my first involvement was uh, around, I think between 2006 and 2008, while we were doing these conflict surveys and going back uh, both to train forest department uh, officials on how to deal with conflict situations, how to remove conflict animals from uh, those areas and training villagers on uh, on living safely with crocodiles and so on. So yeah, I kept going back and then uh, when we had the chance to, or we were, we were um, deciding what projects to do for a master's thesis, uh, I had only two considerations. One was to either go and study conflict in the Andamans uh, with saltwater crocodile, and that proposal got shot down immediately. And my second option was to study Garyals in the Chambul, and <laughs> that was luckily accepted. Yeah, so and then, uh, yeah, things just uh, continued from there on. And so, although I was uh, uh, based out of the crop bank after the master's program, I still kept going back to the Chambul and 
both to continue some of the monitoring that uh, we were doing uh, from, from the master's course. And that was also when the Ministry of Environment and Forest set up a tri-state committee uh, for management and coordination between three states. So the Chambal Chanchari itself is uh, straddled across, across MP, UP and Rajasthan. And there was very little coordination between three state departments. And so this committee was supposed to uh, get them to uh, decide on a set of common objectives and find some way of working together. And uh, that was a good uh, experience in the sense of um, getting to know how uh, policy decisions are taken at that level and how difficult it can be trying to coordinate between so many agencies and states and organizations and individuals. Uh, so that was a good learning experience, but uh, I'm not sure very much came out of it. And yeah, that part is disappointing, certainly. Yeah, I mean, the alternate uh, timeline of your career trajectory is uh, you going to Little Andaman and feeling saltwater crocodiles through the streets, <laughs> muddy streams. And we were told uh, by uh, our professors, who were also your professors at the master's program, that one of the prerequisites of a master's project is you coming back alive to present it. <laughs> yeah, so I had planned to, uh, the proposal, yeah, I wanted to capture animals in stomach flush and look at their diets and figure out if uh, them not having enough resources is why there's conflict. And yeah, it was a, uh, in many ways, not a well thought out project, but <laughs> if I had the chance, I would go and do something on similar lines. Amazing. And I think uh, even the Chambal, I mean, for our listeners who are not familiar with it and probably have seen Pan Singh Tomar or other uh, Chambal based <laughs> narratives, I think that they one would expect that these would be equally dangerous. Um, so the difficult part was uh, uh, dealing with people. And um, and yeah, so see, uh, there've been generations of researchers who worked there, especially since the uh, mid nineteen seventies, uh, when Project Crocodile was initiated. So the landscape has had his uh, fair share of uh, researchers going and working there. And local people know about people coming there and working. So in that sense, my going there was n not a novelty, but. Um, because there was a lot of pressure on the system in the in on the protected area, uh, both for fishing and uh, uh, from the sand mafia, they didn't take very kindly to uh, people studying garyals because they knew most of the opposition was from uh, researchers interested in garyal and other species like the skimmer and freshwater turtles. So. Um, yeah, we did face a lot of uh, opposition in that sense. We would get uh, stopped by the sand mining guys, even if we were not interfering with them, even if we were simply uh, setting up our survey stations and so on. Uh, people would try and take away our uh, binoculars or try to steal life jackets. And we would we were basically getting bullied <laughs> in that landscape. And it took a while to get used to that. And uh, again, I was lucky to have some 
great people to work with uh, people from the area and yeah so things fell in place and uh, but the best part was it simply is a fascinating landscape um, um, in spite of all the disturbances and challenges and so on and um, yeah i think that's what uh, keeps people going there and you realize that uh, or at least i realize that uh, even more uh, after having had the chance to survey a bunch of other rivers uh, following the chambal experience and really no place matches up with the kind of wildlife and yeah the life forms that you that still survive in that particular system so really it really was a treat to have been able to work there Uh, no, definitely. I think, like you said, there's so much more biodiversity there than we realize. I mean, I think we just think of it as uh, a system that's unlike a rainforest and not look much further beyond that. But uh, like you said, there's just so much going on. And considering that landscape is also very politically charged, and like you said, even when you were doing nothing wrong, you did get bullied. um so uh, and outside of your academic interest in the species and the system you also clearly care very deeply for the fate of this uh you know landscape and waterscape so how did you also find yourself finally getting involved in a lot of the on ground conservation uh work that happens there because uh, we know now that you've also tried to combat some of these issues like sand sand mining um yeah so even during the master's work uh, and i think this probably had to do with my uh, experience and background of having uh, monitored wildlife trade in and around bangalore for very long especially the pet trade and the illegal meat market and all of that and uh, yeah this is something that i didn't mention so by the time i, I was 19 i already had i was fighting like a dozen court cases and so on because uh, we got ourselves um, these uh, uh permissions from the forest department which and they allow to uh, authorize people under the wildlife act to uh, assist them with uh, uh conservation related activities so uh, i had this uh, i think uh, uh inclination maybe perhaps to <laughs> get into trouble and uh, yeah so if i came across illegal activities even while doing uh, if so example if the fishing nets and uh, they were set up illegally and we knew that turtles and gharials were getting trapped we would go about removing them and um, we would keep tabs on the sand miners inform the forest department and so all of that was happening in parallel and uh, some of the opposition to our working that perhaps <laughs> arose because of that and uh, yeah so and i think that's something that uh, i continue doing in most of the landscapes i worked in because i somehow uh, cannot bring myself to be a mere observer when i uh, come across these sort of activities and um, yeah i think one thing led to the other and um, so uh, so while we were trying to deal with things uh, with the forest department i with the ministry at, uh, at a policy level we continue doing some of our groundwork in terms of 
helping the department with these basic enforcement activities. We also got involved with uh, um, an application in the National Green Tribunal because uh, we didn't think the state departments were doing enough uh, to stop what was happening in the chamber. So yeah, so all of these things happened in parallel, and uh, yeah, so, and one thing led to the other, and they fed off each other. And we had a similar experience in the zone, uh, where the forest department uh, invited us to do a hydrological study, and that was for actually that followed some surveys that we'd done prior to uh, the department involved inviting us to work there. And the challenges were similar to what we had in the chamber, and uh, uh, and this was a po population that was the same. A population was something that was just recovering. Uh, they had uh, records of breeding only for ten years prior to us going there, and so we thought it was important to try and uh, put some effort into this recovering population. Uh, but again, uh, and we again got involved with uh, both helping the management, uh, uh, the, the park management with their activities, uh, getting involved with uh, education and awareness programs. Uh, um, again, they got involved in a, a case in the National Green Tribunal and so on. And uh, unfortunately, after that, after several, about three or four years of work, uh, it was all uh, undone simply because uh, um, local fishermen set out nets and trapped the two only two uh, two uh, breeding males in that landscape, and uh, and in some sense this was a recurring theme because uh, after several months, several years of uh, working in landscapes. Uh, you often ended up in a situation where the species and the place was worse off than when you started. And uh, then you're left wondering as to like uh, about what went wrong and what you could have done differently. And it's certainly crushing because uh, you're not sure how to proceed. But then again, you have to conjure up hope and <laughs> and go back to doing what you think is important in that particular landscape. So this has happened uh, like a couple of times. And uh, yeah, we're still searching for answers. Wow, uh, there's just so much to take in from everything you just said. And I also feel, um, you know, it's just really amazing that you've been this involved with every issue even close to home when you were so young and very few people I mean such a small minority of people from this field that actively put themselves out there on the line uh, even at the risk of being personally targeted by the people you're going up against and I think that's uh, um, that that's quite uh, amazing um, and it also uh, you know for our listeners as well, considering there are so many different ways of dealing with these issues. And like you said, sometimes you give it your all from one method and it still doesn't send you somewhere you want to go. Um, how different are the approaches of, say, a conservationist versus an activist? And 
uh, where do you think you fall along that spectrum? <laughs> I don't know if I'm aware of uh, <laughs> what the differences are really. <laughs> and um, maybe you could uh, you could put on the conservationist hat when you're working with governments in uh, trying to deal with issues uh, through consultations and trying to work with people rather than take them head on or, or to challenge the system. I think when you have to challenge uh, the status quo in many of these places, then I think is when you have to put on your activist hat. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a lot of food for thought. Uh, so I had a question about something that you just said, which is you spoke about the ecological grief, the, the, the non-intuitive uh, result of your actions, which is like you do something you want to make it better, but it gets worse because not necessarily because of your actions. And then you question your own actions, like you said. Uh, but you finally ended up with how you just gather up your courage and just like move on and work. And I think that's something that is especially difficult for people starting out and all of us, at least for me, for sure, uh, because that's shamelessly, that's the reason why I would not uh, be as brave as you would be because hand, handling that grief is, is uh, very difficult. Uh, how? Do, what are your? How do you do that? How is it that you get up the next day and still continue to work for the system that you do? Oh, I, I don't know if there's any conscious process as such. Um, things just come about. So I don't think you often get the chance to dwell on the grief. Um, there's a new challenge in some other landscape. Somebody's called you for assistance or help or something and I think often you're just responding to individual situations and that uh, carries on and but it's when you try and uh, there are moments when you uh, think about what's happened and what could have gone better and uh, yeah I, I still don't have answers to many of those things about if we would have done anything differently and uh, yeah, so I frankly don't have answers to that. Yeah. See, uh, one example I can uh, think of is, so we've always told that you have to involve people in education and awareness is a big component and we went with it. And, and uh, this is especially, uh, um, uh, revealing to me because uh, I, I never saw myself doing any of that but because we were told that this is how you go in the landscape and engage with people and learn from them and tell them what you're doing so like this particular example that I'm talking about is uh, so we organized uh, we worked with local theater groups and organized street plays and puppet shows and documentary screenings and all of that and this was this was following uh, some surveys that we did after the Chambil experience because we wanted to know how the Garyal was faring in other parts of his range. So uh, some colleagues and I we went to um, it was like the Tones, Betwa, Son, uh, Ken, uh, Gandak, and so on uh, to try and look for Garyals and see if these animals are still persisting in these landscapes and what's happened to them. And all of these sites are where. Uh, Project Crocodile reintroduced a lot of animals which had gone extinct in the past. 
not uh, with the locally extubated. So after going to all these places, uh, only two sites had uh, some inkling of a chance, which was the Son and the Ganda. And after the initial surveys, we thought, yeah, maybe uh, what we're seeing is encouraging and these are the places that need some attention. So that's when we decided to go with these uh, and carry out these programs because uh, while we spoke to people during the surveys and interacted with them, it's, we got the sense that uh, even local people don't seem to really recognize that uh, some of these species are present here because the numbers were so low. Uh, it would only be uh, people who were on the river every day. For example, fishermen would be aware that yeah, these animals are around. But uh, some farmer on the along the river bank or on the riverside uh, often had no clue of all of this, and and we thought uh, maybe it's important to tell them that these places are important and they can have a positive role in uh, ensuring that. Uh, these things survive in these landscapes. So yes, so these programs were carried out with, uh, with that in mind. And uh, yeah, so we traveled with these uh, artists and these uh, troops uh, going from village to village, school to school. And this went on for week after week. And uh, at the end of that, we had, uh, I think, an audience of close to 15,000 people and we were very chuffed about having reached out to such a large uh, uh, section of our target population. And uh, and we got the regional press involved in uh, people who we thought were influential in these landscapes and uh, all of that. And uh, But it was only with uh, time and having gone back to these landscapes after these programs that we started to doubt it. Uh, what we did and if anything, any of that was effective at all. Uh, because um, at its barest, we were simply, I think, a source of free entertainment to people. I think any sideshow or street act would have garnered a crowd just as large or even maybe larger. And uh, we were often even told uh, that people in the crowd or the crowd was so large because of, uh, because of the, a female member in our team. And so, yeah, people would come and tell these, and then be like, why are we even doing all this? And <laughs> what, what are we trying to achieve? And uh, we also realized that the initial plan and the script and all of that that has been uh, written up in these programs were clearly uh, influenced by our urban sensibilities. And we realized only after the troop had staged the first cut, and it really seemed woefully out of place in that setting. So then we had to go back and rework and try and figure out what the local dialects are and try to uh, incorporate local nuances and other everyday colloquialisms and things that we were not aware of actually. And this also encouraged these artists to exercise uh, their creative freedom and stuff. But uh, as is often the case, uh, this also meant that uh, uh, sometimes uh, inadvertently uh, we ended up uh, perpetuating local stereotypes and superstitions and undertones of uh, all kinds of societal inequalities based on class, caste, gender, and so on. And uh, we would like to avoid the course in like crude ways that are typical of these parts of North India. And often we were not in a position to do or know better. 
and uh, even with things like the use of uh, religious and cultural references to seek support for garial conservation was not straightforward uh, personally or uh, being an atheist i never considered the role of religion as a conservation tool but uh, because everything else that we tried uh, didn't seem to be getting us anywhere we decided yeah maybe give this a try and uh, but personally it was difficult to grapple with this uh, inconsistency and uh, yeah and because we are desperate and uh, desperate to reach out to a target audience we went and invoked religion and apart from feelings of empathy pride and stewardship and all of this and uh, and see while we didn't have any uh, way to uh, formally assess what we were doing uh, we did think this was very important in achieved what we set out to do but it was only after a few months that and after people went out and uh, got these uh, reading mails killed then we like yeah <laughs> this has come to nothing and um, yeah so that's how that part ended and again this was all in parallel to this we got involved with doing other um, or addressing other issues because it's not just local people uh, uh, creating trouble for many of these species we also had to deal with uh, changes which are beyond the local realm like what's happening with dams and large infrastructure so the in the zone case uh, there's a dam upstream of uh, where the sanctuary starts and there's very little water for most of the year, especially in the dry season. Uh, so we went about doing a hydrological assessment of uh, the changes brought about by the dam and how we could best uh, address some of the issues because the dam would release water every year exactly during the breeding season. So the animals would be breeding, but uh, if there's an, an unseasonal release, then the entire year's nesting effort gets wasted. Yeah, so we tried addressing that and went about uh, uh, studying what the hydrological requirements are and wrote a report, presented it to the government, got involved in another uh, court case, uh, trying to get the court to give us a favorable verdict to, and ask the dam authorities to maintain ecological flows. Uh, but yeah, so all of that was happening and then what with these uh, with the removal of these two breeding males <laughs> we back to square one because like what are we what did we do all this for and what are we trying to achieve because now there's nothing to show for it so yeah so these have been some of the challenges and uh, um luckily We've also had the chance to try and uh, look at other aspects and other issues uh, facing garyals. So some of the follow-up work in the Gandak, again, looking at ecological flows, didn't have to deal with many of these issues. And there's still hope in those landscapes. So yeah, I think so that's what uh, keeps us going. Wow, that was, uh, yeah, this, this. <laughs> We can hear this podcast multiple times and get new things out of it. I think all of us uh, listening to you. Uh, one thing that came about, which I I, I want to ask you further, is about uh, the lack of congruence between action and impact, uh, especially when the action is driven by urban sensibilities. Something that you had uh, uh, 
you know an, an incredible insight on for instance there's nothing there's something nothing more surreal than that example which you gave which is you guys are going there doing outreach activities but the local people are coming to see the female members of your team or whatever and then you realize what are we doing <laughs> and and it seems like the funding sources come from the global north with these kind of motivations where they fund you for posters and banners but right. on ground conservation that you do realize that you probably need funding for something totally different like lobbying or i don't know what but whatever the local sensibility is yes so how do you how do you resolve that as a practical situation now uh, both you and what you see others should be doing hmm i really don't know <laughs> i i don't know what the answer should be but i try and uh, like get motivation from colleagues like uh, imran siddiqui who is a batchmate of mine and to uh, uh, to listen to and see how he manages to go about his work in those landscapes and i think you need to have uh, incredible people skills and that's something i <laughs> clearly uh, uh, don't seem to have and yeah i think that's something uh, one will have to work on and uh, you also have to be open to be able to work with uh, people who you generally may not get along with um and uh, yeah i think you have to be very focused uh, maybe even narrowly focused on your conservation objective and uh, uh not get distracted by who you're working with what their motivations are or what their politics are and so on because often you don't have that luxury and uh yeah we're still trying to i think uh, find a way uh, around many of these conservation challenges see it's uh, it's it's much simpler to just do a research project and go about collecting data write a report maybe if you spend some time and effort get a publication out of that and all of that and uh, i don't want to get trapped into that and uh, i don't feel motivated just to do that um i'd like to make some uh, like contribution to these landscapes that i'm working in not merely document what the challenges and threats are but uh, that part has been a struggle really um yeah so you know that also brings us to the fact that so much of conservation work is an integrally very interdisciplinary space and it's always incredible to see how seemingly unrelated bits of science can feed into what a certain species needs to survive and i mean of course like you've already said there are just an like so many factors feeding into how you can even advocate for why we should conserve something or why we should try to protect something and uh, part of that journey for you has also been uh, you know working with dr jagdish krishnaswamy at atri who is like yourself also an ecologist hydrologist um so for our listeners could you perhaps uh, speak a little more to what hydrology is and how that uh, features into your work and also how you found yourself so uh, deep in those waters well to start with i have no formal training in hydrology and i happened to dabble in it only because of uh, my guide 
and uh, and also having realized that one of the challenges in many of these aquatic systems is that there's not enough water left in many of these rivers especially in the dry season and uh, that really is becoming the limiting factor and the only way to try and get some understanding about that is to uh, get involved in understand these systems hydrologically and to yeah one is to just to try and identify uh, what the challenges are and what possible solutions can uh, come out of it. So yeah, so although there's no formal training in hydrology, uh, I continue to be fascinated by the subject itself and the kind of opportunities, uh, conservation opportunities it can um, bring about. So yeah, that's my motivation to uh, get involved in, in this particular subfield. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, of course, as soon as you get uh, involved in so many things along the way, I think it would be uh, really hard for everyone to be formally trained in everything they end up doing. But uh, I guess that also comes back to how much we just learn in field and take it as it comes and, you know, end up having and using practical knowledge, uh, which is often quite far removed from what we ever learned in college. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, we actually also wanted to ask you to uh, share maybe some of your uh, experiences that you had doing this hydrological work in a lot of uh, these areas, which also have so many uh, interesting local stakeholders, you know, just to uh, put it a little lightly. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm sure you've had both uh, really scary and also amusing run-ins with a lot of these, uh, you know, people on ground. Could you maybe share some of that with us? Um, I think the most challenging group to work with have been the sand miners because they clearly see us as uh, somebody in opposition to what they're doing. And uh, there's no pretending that we are on their side or any of that. So that bit is a challenge. And yeah, like I've said, we've often been bullied by them and them trying to take away our material. In one case, uh, we've had one incident where they tried to drown our boat uh, just to have fun. And so, and but and you often cannot figure out if they would they're doing it out of malice or just for their entertainment or what because uh, they, it's a very uh, new experience at least for me it was a very new experience having to deal with all of that but uh, having spoken to other researchers in many of those landscapes they've all had uh, similar experiences at some point or the other although earlier on it was with uh, decoits and uh, other such elements but now it's uh, mostly to do with criminal elements who are after resources in these, uh, after natural resources in these landscapes. Um, what else? We've, yeah, we've also had trouble with uh, um, people in the water sector, for example, dam authorities, uh, like water resources departments uh, and Central Water Commission. They're supposed to be collecting data and along many of these systems. And it's often hard to get hold of any of that data because 
it's considered classified and uh, they've always maintained that they uh, release adequate volumes of water in these protected areas for endangered species and um, so forth. But uh, when we went back to, uh, or when we decided to monitor these systems and uh, measure these variables for ourselves, uh, we realized that they were not maintaining uh, even 10% of what they claimed they were releasing. And uh, when this was challenged, uh, both at a policy level and in court, uh, they were supposed to try and prevent us working from in there and uh, suggesting that we were not uh, qualified to do that work and so on. So those have been some challenges working with uh, other departments. Yeah. Yeah, but also, uh, we also want to know some uh, <laughs> less inten intense but more interesting stories. I feel, uh, for instance, we heard <laughs> that you were uh, you were a chief guest at a political rally in Chambal or something on those lines, where you had to go on stage and give a speech. <laughs> no, so we've been uh, we've been participants, willing and otherwise, at a bunch of uh, such events. And sometimes they're political events, sometimes religious events. Uh, often it's just a large marriage celebration or a, a birthday or something like that. And uh, because we often odd entities in the landscape, uh, people invite us to these functions and say that, well, okay, why don't you share the stage with us and uh, say a few lines about your work. And so for us, it's an opportunity to try and say what we're doing and why we're doing that. But we also have to uh, make sure that we communicate our non-association with whoever our hosts for the day are, because we, you don't know what their motivations are, what their ideologies or politics are. So you want to uh, disassociate yourself from that, but also try and make use of these opportunities to let people know what you're doing. Mostly so that uh, they don't try and hassle you, and uh, it's a foot in the uh, door to try and open uh, um, local contacts and basically establish communication. But I can't claim that there have been any conservation outcomes from <laughs> having attended any of those uh, sessions and events. Yeah, but I'm sure uh, they, they will make for some great reading. And I think uh, all of these seem <laughs> yeah, like... They, they... <laughs> yeah, some of the events are comical and uh, uh, there's all of that. It's funny to be on stage and at least initially uh, having to do a speech in Hindi was... I'm glad there was no uh, mobile phones then and nobody has recorded that. <laughs> but I'm sure it made for... Uh, good laughing amongst the audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and besides the people, I guess, uh, in the landscapes, I'm sure uh, some uh, respite that you get from these very intense interactions with uh, your conservation activities is uh, the natural world itself. Because while you're measuring riverine flows and talking to government stakeholders and be giving speeches in Hindi, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of your time that that probably is what drives you in the first place is looking at gharials and 
uh, and crocodiles and turtles. So, uh, can you can you share, say, for instance, the Chamba landscape uh, and other rivers in the Gangetic Plain? Uh, can you share some interactions with animals that are more special to you? Non-reptilians are highly encouraged. <laughs> Uh, I really, I really have to think about it. But, but uh, what you're saying is right because uh, I think that's the only motivation, really, uh, to be able to watch animals in some of these landscapes. And, and really, it's it's a privilege because uh, uh, having gone to other other landscapes and spending weeks and weeks <laughs> looking for animals and you don't see any. And uh, yeah, so at least the jungle that way has been really special. And uh, yeah, I, I I can't think of any. Nothing comes to my mind in terms of any particular encounter. Uh, I maybe I'll come to that a little later. Yeah, sure. And um, you know, I think uh, what would also be really great to talk about is just the philosophy that you. Uh, come from in terms of just finding your career path as well. And you seem to have taken a very um, unconventional route in some senses because you're so close to working with both the species like you just uh, mentioned and people. Um, and you also seem to give back a lot more than you take from these systems. And that's very different from uh, those who follow a very academic route in their career, like even, um, for example, you know, so many people say that pursuing a PhD is a very selfish pursuit, but what you, you're doing seems very different from that. And while we know that you've been toying with the idea of maybe doing a PhD, uh, you know, we also wonder whether it's possible to do such uh, dedicated academic work like a PhD where it's essentially you uh, fine-tuning your skills and knowledge about one particular topic versus giving back and doing so much other work, whether it's conservation, whether it's putting on your activism hat. Um, so walk us through that. Tell us where you're at right now and um, what you feel uh, ought to be your part going forward. See, soon after the master's program, I was clear I didn't want to do a PhD because I couldn't imagine uh, going back into a classroom. And because uh, even the master's course was quite challenging because uh, I hadn't spent uh, any length of time in a classroom for many years prior to that. And so to have those uh, three semesters of intense coursework was uh, quite a challenge. So I wasn't looking forward to going back into a PhD program soon after the master's. And yeah, so that was, yeah, so I got involved in a bunch of projects and in a sense realized that I was just doing things that uh, I had been doing for some time and not really learning very much, not applying, uh, not thinking through uh, in new ways, so there was some sense of stagnation, and uh, it was then I then that I started thinking that uh, maybe a PhD is a good way to um, uh, pick up new skills and learn new things. And because we're reading stuff from other parts of the world and the kind of research that goes on, you often 
think that yeah maybe there are answers in what's coming out of there and it's worth pursuing some of that and so that was uh, maybe that's the only motivation for a phd and that it might give structure to doing something like that and uh, uh, get guidance to do it otherwise you just uh, or at least i felt i was bumming around in the dark and not getting anywhere so yeah maybe that's why i think maybe a phd is one potential route to doing that yeah i think uh, there definitely needs to be a nice a uh, poster of uh, many thing many ways to do a phd and try and <laughs> synthesize those <laughs> different ways <laughs> yeah um uh, i think moving on from here I, there's something that uh, i think you of all people would be in the best position to talk about uh, which is um, your personal motivation for uh, the landscape and for conservation and what drives you so there's no doubt that listeners who have reached this part of the pod, this stage in the podcast know that your uh, love for the landscape and the species is sort of uh, unequivocal but they also i'm sure people know that you know that conservation can't happen without uh, involving local people yet there is this false dichotomy that's created between you know you are either for people or for conservation and this came out very stark in a, a recent controversy in which you were unfortunately embroiled in Uh, which is uh, about managing crocodiles uh, human crocodile conflict in the andaman islands uh, which you spoke about earlier on in the podcast as a potential research topic so you wrote a very powerful article in the wire explaining why uh, culling these animals basically killing them uh, is not a blanket solution uh, but that drew a lot of flack from a lot of people uh, within the conservation community uh but you stuck your ground so can you tell us about your motivations for doing that and why you think Uh, that this is even a problem well uh i think simply put any decision or any management decision or uh, conservation recommendation should ultimately be beneficial for the species in question and to me the idea that culling is going to reduce conflict and in the long term get local support for the species uh was not convincing at all and that's one of the reasons why i i and the first article explained why uh why i thought the particular way i did and it drew from ex- examples and experiences from other parts of the world and yeah so that was basically the uh the basically broadly um explains why i took that position and uh, then the response to that was uh, uh, rather strange because uh, uh, i was accused of having had that position because uh, i'm in an urban setup and therefore uh, suggesting that i don't have the uh, maybe right to talk about what happens in these landscapes and i find that sort of uh, argument bizarre because uh for one uh like what are the assumptions that you're making when you just classify somebody as being urban and not qualified about uh, talking about uh, any particular issue 
And uh, so would that mean I'm only allowed to talk about what happens in Sakar Nagar because I'm a resident here? Yeah, so those are some of the issues that uh, I had to deal with. And my second response is primarily because I was also working with uh, people in the Andamans or uh, trying to explain why in the administration. And uh, we were able to hold back that proposal uh, while some of these arguments were being examined. And I was told that uh, but one of your seniors uh, has uh, openly uh, has been very dismissive of some of these claims and how are you going to counter that? And that's why I had to uh, respond saying that uh, the arguments have no uh, validity. Uh, because rather than uh, uh, rather than counter the arguments that I've made against the culling, their opposition was to who they uh, perceived I was or uh, what they thought my identity was. And I thought those arguments and those considerations are irrelevant and cannot be encouraged, especially from a senior ecologist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, something so poignant here is how someone who has gone around through the whole circle of seeing how conservation works on ground, understanding local realities and living those realities, and you coming back to that place you started off and speaking with that experience versus someone who doesn't have that. The fact that the two are indistinguishable is probably a huge problem in our field, right? Yeah, see, so often even when you talk about uh, uh, conflict uh, or when you're expected to find solutions with conflict, and anytime you oppose uh, uh, methods that uh, are very rather simplistic, which say that, okay, we'll get rid of this animal and it's going to uh, bring down conflict. And if you oppose that, uh, their standard response is, oh, you don't live in that landscape, and therefore you don't have to. Uh, you have no right to talk about it. And I find that bizarre because uh, what are we expected to do? Like, do we just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and only wor worry about our immediate surroundings? And it's often the case that because uh, people in local situations or who are having to deal with conflict every day, uh, they're not in a position to look at it from a wider lens because they're so involved in their uh, daily struggles and it necessarily requires a view from outside and it's that doesn't apply only to uh, conservation if you look, like look back at uh, social reform in the country uh, raja ram mohan roy wasn't somebody who grew up in those landscapes and opposed uh, sati and child marriage and all of that from within it was a view from the outside and if he just sat around getting people's opinions in uh, asking whether they favor the abolition of these social evils, he wouldn't have gone anywhere. And to me, uh, conservation in that, in that sense is a reformist movement. And often you have to take the, you have to um, uh, view at, look at issues from the outside because from the inside you're so caught up in these struggles that you cannot take a, a reasonable and objective view. Wow, I think uh, these should this should be recommend the transcript of this podcast. Your section should be recommended reading because uh, uh, for young conservationists everywhere. Because 
I mean, we're not saying this just, I don't think I'm saying this just to, you know, uh, say nice things to our guests, but because uh, it's so important that your internal needles should be moved, should have moved ahead of what you're trying to propose uh, for society's needle, I think, uh, what you just described. So thank you for that. Uh, I had a follow up, actually, uh, I think we're coming towards the end of the podcast. So from my end, uh, I had a follow up on one of the first questions that you answered about your uh, growing up in Bangalore at a time when, you know, the city hadn't grown. And I think this yeah. is a reality for um, urban Indians across India. Any Take any city, outskirts of Pune, outskirts of Guwahati, outskirts of Delhi, all of which have transformed incredibly in the last few years and incredibly being a non-positive connotation. Because, uh, and it has resulted in so much transformation. And I think your lived memories of the ecologies of this place are also lost. And uh, is that something you think about? And uh, is that something you plan to uh, explore uh, from your academic or non-academic interests? Um, I don't have a straightforward answer to that. See, while I miss many of the places uh, that I've grown up around, especially around Bangalore, and uh, and have seen the loss of these ecosystems and habitats and so on. Uh, but having traveled and looked at uh, larger landscapes uh, and from examples from other parts of the world, uh, I often think that maybe uh, it's inevitable that um, places around city centers get destroyed. Uh, and maybe an increased uh, urban aggregation of India's population will help free up more habitat where many of these species have a better chance. And, and what I'm referring to specifically is rural emigration. Because of the kind of pressures on our protected areas and areas outside uh, protected areas, uh, and pressures in terms of the numbers of people, uh, I think species may have a better chance of recovering only if those pressures are removed. And those pressures mean uh, reducing the number of people and, and the human population densities in these landscapes. And so I hold uh, great hope out to mass rural emigration. And we've, there are examples from, say, uh, parts of Nepal where so many people have left these uh, village sites to work in cities and those are the that's, that's probably the only example of a developing uh, country recovering its forest and that's simply because people are not going in and chopping firewood and extracting raw materials out of these landscapes and I think uh, and we already know that there's a lot of uh, rural transformation in that sense uh, some of it which was reversed because of the lockdown but I hope more people leave these landscapes, go into urban centers. And it's not, uh, it's also what a lot of people aspire to do. Younger generations of fishermen don't want to go out fishing. They've seen more of the outside world. And I think uh, one of the transformative uh, technologies has been the mobile phone. You go to any of these landscapes, most people have uh, seen a wider world and I can be, I'm fairly sure that they don't aspire to go around plucking shoots and roots and catch fish and all of that. 
and uh, and or, and, or, and many of these landscapes you people you see kids practicing they aspire to go to these dance shows and all of that and that basically means they're spending less time moving around these forests and uh, there's less disturbance to wildlife in these places because few kids are going out hunting few people are going out hunting and and those benefits will improve uh, much more as more and more people leave those landscapes and move into city centers and uh, more urbanized settings so yeah while the immediate surroundings of these urban centers might take a hit maybe overall there's uh, more landscape and more habitats that will be freed up for wildlife but yeah that's a difficult one because uh, some of these places are where these have been your your formative years are uh, in these landscapes and they do uh, uh, have a special place in your heart yeah yeah i think having to uh, the fact that you not only have this lived experience at local scales but an awareness of the global situation global in this case is india i guess uh, and how you know uh, your grief in one place may be uh, uh, linked to ecological happiness or whatever that means in another landscape and i think that awareness is uh, probably something that we should all have to sleep better at night <laughs> uh and i think i want to ask you again finally the, another follow up based on this uh, what you just said is uh what you just said about how pe- uh, uh, rural india has aspirations to move to urban areas to aspirations to an urban life which uh seems to run antithetical to a lot of uh top down social efforts both from the government and the and the ngo space because you hear about how uh agriculturists are unable to sell their land because of agricultural rules which to allow you to only sell it to other agricultural purposes because of which people are forced into this and therefore neither does wildlife regenerate nor do people's livelihoods improve and it seems like this sort of fact is not so commonly seen in our circles in the conservation space because there's a need to you know uh, impinge upon local people aspirations that they may not necessarily have where do you think that comes from do you, do you do you do you think there is some deeper motivation for that uh i've often thought of that uh, and i wonder if it's to do with uh, uh the politics of some of these people um and i suspect it is to do with uh, the politics of the left uh where they imagine these uh self sufficient rural households and societies and all of that but really life is not that and it's not going in that direction at all and uh, yeah and and it's often and the learnings are often from interactions with the people you're in the field because uh, for example when we're doing our river surveys we are living on a boat with our fishermen for weeks on end and we often camp out uh at sites where large uh, uh, lots of boats come in uh, um rest for the night and so on and it's a nice ch- good chance to work with and talk to people over uh what they expect from life and what they see in the next 20 30 40 years and it's very clear that uh, they don't expect to see themselves doing what they're doing now and uh, there is no romance in 
either agriculture or NTFPA collection or in fisheries and all of that. These are extremely difficult livelihoods. Uh, there's very little surety. You don't know where it's not dependable in many ways. And uh, many people want out because some of these systems are so heavily uh, um, what's the right word? Uh, so heavily utilized and extracted from that. Uh, they're not very productive landscapes anymore. And people realize that. And they don't want to see their children doing all of this. And uh, unfortunately, there is a section of uh, uh, social scientists and uh, people from the development sector who want people to continue. I imagine that people want to continue doing what they are in the garb of tradition and culture and all of that. And I find that utterly strange because what we call culture and tradition is so fickle and fluid that that argument holds no uh, water at all. And uh, I think they are unwilling to let go of this romantic notion of uh, rural life, I think. And it probably stems from that. And yeah, even uh, even if, you, if I, when I talk to young uh, researchers in the social sciences, uh, their observations match many of uh, what I'm saying. Uh, and even they acknowledge that uh, people from a slightly older generation of uh, researchers, social scientists especially, are uh, trapped in this, uh, uh, this notion of what rural life ought to be and uh, these magical claims of coexistence and harmony and all of that. And that really does not exist out in the real world. A lot of, yeah, you do have wildlife sharing spaces with people and or human dominated landscapes, but that, except for a handful of examples from parts of Rajasthan or Gujarat, you can't really attach the label of coexistence to any of uh, these examples of basically what is just co occurrence. Yeah, so I think these large scale. Uh, transformations, these rural urban transformations are inevitable. And I think there is a conservation opportunity because of freeing up of space for more space for wildlife. And as long as uh, other challenges in terms of resource extraction and pollution and all of that are addressed, I think having more land available for species to recover is, I think, the way forward. In, yeah, that's what I uh, hope would happen. I think that's a very interesting insight, Tharan, uh, because it's good to look at these changing systems, I guess, not from a space of denial, but in trying to optimize uh, conservation opportunity there, uh, like you said. Um, yeah. Um, so, Tarun, we actually, you know, we've given us so much to think about, and uh, but we uh, have come to towards the end of our uh, questions, and I think you know you've really, really grounded us back into the fact that life in this field really isn't a romantic one. I mean, this is, after all, a crisis discipline, and even the fact that we have jobs to do means that there are some real problems out there needing addressal. 
and it's uh, it's incredible and inspiring to know how much of yourself you've put into these causes and it seems obvious also from the way you speak about them and of these areas that you're nowhere close to the end of uh, this journey so really thank you so much for sharing so much of it and so honestly as well and you've certainly left us with an important reality check um as well yeah. thanks We had a great time recording this episode. We hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening.